0: Welcome to the Mad in America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry,
1: and social justice. Hello, and welcome to the Mad in America podcast. I'm Javier Rizzo, a doctoral student in clinical psychology at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, and a science news writer for the Mad in America website. I'm here with Lynn Layton today. Um, Lynn is a psychoanalyst and assistant clinical professor of psychology, part-time at Harvard Medical School. She holds a PhD in clinical psychology as well as comparative literature, and has taught courses on gender, popular culture, and on culture and psychoanalysis for Harvard's Committee on Degrees in Women's Studies and in Social Studies. Currently, she teaches and supervises at the Massachusetts Institute for Psychoanalysis. She recently published a book called Towards a Social Psychoanalysis, Culture, Character, and Normative Unconscious Processes that's available currently. She is the author of Who's That Girl? Who's That Boy? Clinical Practice Meets Postmodern Gender Theory, and was the co-editor for Narcissism in the Text, Studies in Literature and the Psychology of Self, and Bringing the Plague Towards a Postmodern Psychoanalysis, as well as the book Psychoanalysis, Class and Politics, Encounters in a Clinical Setting. She was also the co-editor for Psychoanalysis, Culture, and Society from 2004 to 2018, and is currently an associate editor of Psychoanalytic Dialogues. She is past president of Section 9, Division 39 of APA, uh, Psychoanalysis for Social Responsibility, and the co-founder of Reflective Spaces, Material Places in Boston, a group of psychodynamic therapists committed to community mental health and social justice. She's on the organizing committee of the grassroots reparations campaign, which works towards building a culture of repair. And um, we'll go ahead and turn it away. So thank you for coming and, and talking with us today, Lynn.
0: Pleasure to be here.
1: Great, so I was just hoping you could tell us a little bit more about um, your journey to, to psychoanalysis and to specifically social psychoanalysis.
0: Sure. So, um, as you had mentioned, I was first a graduate student in comparative literature and, uh, one of the courses that I took. So I think I was at the time, um, 22 or 23. And one of the courses I was taking was an intellectual history and, um, an intellectual history course that was taught by a man named Eisenberg. And one day, uh, he was talking about Freud as part of the intellectual history and he was recounting the story of, um, Freud's relationship with fleece and fleeces theory of um, hysteria as being located in the nose and the the sinuses and the nose. And during the course of that lecture, which was about an hour and a half, I noticed that I had gone from feeling absolutely fine when I entered to having a serious cold by the end of the lecture. Wow. (laughs) So... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I've never thought of myself in terms of hysteria before, but it certainly was something that that had me, you know, wondering about unconscious process and how the close connection between the body and the mind. So that I think that was one of the beginnings of my interest in psychoanalysis. And I and at the time, I remember wanting to be both a comparative literature professor and then get some training in psychoanalysis. I think the other really important piece of what interested me in psychoanalysis, again, it, it, it was all rooted in what I knew and then became, began to realize I didn't know about myself. So I was very involved in the feminist movements of the sixties when I was in college and, and beyond just continuing to be a part of a feminist activist and interested in feminist theory. Um, at the same time, and, and, and recall that when I was in college, I kept a journal. My first women's studies course, and talked about how I was not going to get married, and how I, you know, was wanted to have this career in comparative literature. And by 22, I was married, and mm. ended up having to make several compromises, which you know weren't a huge big deal, but several compromises in um, what I was able to do. And it, it was not a it was not a happy marriage. Um, but more importantly for this conversation was the, that dichotomy between the walk, the talk I was talking and the walk I was walking. And so that too really got me wondering, like, what are these, what are the processes that go on unconsciously that are working against what you think consciously you want to be doing? And, um, that, that's really where my interest started in psychoanalysis, and I, I happened to be at Washington University when I was studying comparative literature, and there was a, a journal that came out of Washington University called Tilos, and Tilos was um, it was in the sociology department. It was edited by a man named Paul Peconi, a sociologist, and it was the um, the journal that that brought critical theory from Germany into an american public so Herbert marcusa theodore adorno um, max horkheimer eric a little bit of eric from not so much but these were people who were the among the first folks who uh had an interest in putting together marxism and psychoanalysis in the early 20th century um, so so, yeah, so we 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 were reading those people who who were bringing this speaks to the social psychoanalysis who were bringing together the social and the psychic. And so for me, from the outset of my you know journey, both uh, both my personal journey and my intellectual journey, psychoanalysis was social. it was It was not just about the individual mind. it was about how the individual mind is shaped by the social and political historical currents that are going on. And I I, I think one of the, you know, the other really important um, thing about these these theorists for me was that, as I was saying about my own, you know, wonderings about myself, their focus was on what is it that binds people libidinally, attaches people to ideologies and um, demands to conform that, that work against their conscious wishes of what they want to be doing and thinking.
1: Yeah. Great. And so you mentioned, you know, your first entry was through comparative literature and, you know, one thing I've just known as someone who who's in the field now as a, as a, you know, trainee that psychoanalysis, you know, is often found in English departments or literature, but, you know, I also know that you're a practicing clinician as well. And so I am curious about how, You know, those understandings sort of translated into the clinical realm.
0: So that I think that actually brings us to a a really um, significant historical reckoning, um, if you will. Because when I started training in psychology, I went to Boston University and it was entirely psychoanalytic. So, I was not going into a program that was really inimical to what I was wanting to to learn. And that was in the 80s. So, it was from 1983 to 1988. So, not hugely long ago, many, if not most, psychology departments were psychoanalytically oriented. But it was really not more than 10, 12, 15 years later that the BU program, as well as every other program in the country, um, what you know they got rid of, you know I, it it coincided with the beginnings of managed care. Mm-hmm. um and then the you know the elevation of evidence-based science. Um, and so the psych- psychodynamic uh, training, there there was hardly any of it to be had on the graduate student level. You had to then go somewhere beyond um, to be able to get it. But why would you, why would you go? I mean, if you didn't have experiences like mine, where you suddenly realized, you started to realize that your conscious mind, your unconscious mind was working against your conscious mind. (laughs) Why would you even think after your years of training in cognitive behavioral work or whatever, um, folks were being trained in that there was anything else. I, you know, I, I remember actually a story when I was teaching at this wonderful, um, organization that had been in Boston for many, many years, the Boston Institute for Psychotherapy. It was one of the few places that offered low cost treatment and it, and it was a a training program as well. um, Long-term treatment. And um, it, it dissolved a few years ago, not that long ago. And I I don't know all the reasons why it dissolved, but I remember uh, someone telling me that she she had trained in a program in Ohio and not once ever heard Freud or anything about psychodynamic work and then happened to go to a lecture where somebody started talking about it. And she got so excited about it because, again, it connected with something in her life. And then she found the Boston Institute for Psychotherapy and, and was, was thrilled about it. But, you know, I remember my, I, when I taught in Harvard in social studies, I, I taught a course on psychoanalysis and culture. And I had some students who were psychology majors in the course, but were taking these social studies or women's studies courses as well. And they told me that their professor, one of their professors had said that um, Freud's psychoanalysis was a theory that started in whatever, 1870 something and ended in 1970. So Mm. that that was what was being taught in the 90s in Harvard Psychology Park course in harvard psychology department so and this person said i wanted to take one course that was about people before i graduated so that's why i'm taking your course
1: (laughs) so yeah you are mentioning this um you know this this move away in in clinical psychology and in psychiatry i guess you could say away from psychoanalytic models towards other types of models that you know fit within a managed care context and you know one thing i know about um You know, I know you talk about neoliberalism quite a bit in a lot of your work. And so, you know, I am I am also curious about your um, how how neoliberalism fits into, you know, your development as um, as a um, psychoanalyst, but also as a social psychoanalyst as well.
0: So that neoliberalism was is not a word that's really or, you know, an ideology that's really talked about. Part of this shift away from psychodynamic and psychoanalytic thinking is actually well described in, um, in some of the work that um, Sam Binkley, who, who is actually a Foucault scholar and sociologist, talks about. That people are encouraged not to look back into, the, into their history, um, that relational, relationality isn't as important as the development of your sovereign individual self. Um, that you're supposed to be looking towards the future and being positive. Again, this connects with how popular the positive psychology course was at Harvard in um, you know in the, in the 90s and 2000s. Um, and uh, and that if if there's if there's increasingly, um, but I mean this is in some ways always been true in the United States that we don't really think about people's problems as having social roots. That's 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 a rarity in the history of the United States, but it, it it has reached new levels in neoliberalism, where really you're the problem if you're not happy, and um, yeah, so all it, it puts it puts a, a, a weight on clinicians, um, who or or let's say they they become agents in some way of of the state in terms of not seeing these many of the issues our our patients suffer from. As social problems, but rather as individual problems. And also, I mean, another piece of neoliberalism, I don't write about this very much, but a lot of people do. It was the two tier mental health system that it it really creates that, you know, short term work um, in clinics for people who can't afford it, and maybe psychodynamic, five day a week, four day a week, um, you know, analytic work for people who can.
1: So you definitely there is definitely this large influence that neoliberalism as a, an ideology has had in clinical practice and in, and in social life more generally. Of course, I wonder if you can speak to social psychoanalysis specifically within um, the clinical realm, and you know your development of, of that clinical theories.
0: So, beca- because of that earlier um, training, and because of the way I, you know was thinking about myself from a very, from college on, you know, I I was in college during the Vietnam war. It was, it was big beginnings of second wave feminism. There was a lot of social ferment and we were really thinking about ourselves in social terms and not just psychological terms. So by the time I became a clinician, which was already in my thirties and into, into my forties when I became a psychoanalyst, my interest was in taking that work that I had been studying, like the Frankfurt School, um, Althusser, all, all these theories of ideology that were coming from academia. I wanted to understand how we imbibe them on an individual level, how we become um, shaped by the, the systems that we, we grow up in, systems of sexism, racism, Heterosexism, um, classism, how are they shaping us in, in an intersectional way? And by intersectionality, I'm thinking of like the overlapping oppressions um, in terms of systems. How are they shaping our behavior? How are we working against ourselves and in our own, in some ways, our own best interests in our interactions with others and in our relationship to our bodies? Um uh, uh, and for me, that always had to be seen within um, power differentials and the the so- social matrices and the power differentials that operate in those matrices. So that's what I mean by a um, by social psychoanalysis, that you're not looking at the individual as outside of any social context, which is what, you know, when I was in training, they talked a lot about the biopsychosocial but it really didn't mean very much. And I mean, SES class was always supposed to be something you were thinking about when you, but, but it didn't change how you talk to the patient or um, how you, you know, think about their, the relationship of, of their experience um, to other, you know, other folks in, who are in, in different posi- social positionalities. So, um, so I would say that my, um, I'm I'm certainly not the first person to think of psychoanalysis socially, like Fanon was certainly one of the, the forebears. And um a, a big influence on me was Eric Fromm, who was part of the Frankfurt School, but was not, he had been kind of dissed from the version of Frankfurt school that I had learned about because he wasn't strictly Freudian. He had rejected a lot of Freud, Freudian ideas about being driven large largely by sex, sexuality, um, libido. He was more—he uh, was a sociologist before he became a psychoanalyst. So um, he he was more interested in—he uh, he developed a couple of concepts that were influential in what I what I was starting to do. He social unconscious was one of his concepts, and social character, and what he was thinking about were the kinds of things that you're not allowed to think in a culture, and how that forms your a particular character within a particular socioeconomic order. Now he, he was not influenced by feminism. So he uh, was seeing, um, he, he would come up, he came up with this dominant character that wasn't like differentiated by gender, by race, by sex, so in the, in the title of my book, where I uh, talk about character, culture, character, and normative unconscious processes, I'm trying because I've, of my influences from, um, black feminism, intersectionality theory, critical race theory. I'm trying to understand character in a much more differentiated way that wherever you are socially located, there's going to be some ideal way that you're encouraged to be in that location. And when you are not like that, (laughs) you often will be shamed for not being like that, and it will cause psychological conflict that you may end up continuing to act out to your own detriment. And it's the the operation of those forces. I've taken Eric Eric from concept of social unconscious. I've turned into more of a process rather than a substance of an unconscious I talk about unconscious processes that end up, whether you whether it happens in a relationship with it, which could be with your therapist, um, where you collude together to um, uh, uphold in some way the, this, the very sexist, racist, classist status quo that's caused damage in the first place. So in other words, if a, if a therapist were to... Um, in in my day, when I was growing up in the in the fifties and early sixties, a woman was not supposed to be assertive. She was really supposed to be relational. Um, that was the, her most important function was to get married, um, which is what I was talking about earlier. I, I did that, even though you know that's not supposedly consciously what I wanted to do. Uh, but you were shamed for being assertive. You know, you were thought of as an aggressive bitch for being assertive. So it became it becomes conflictual, and if you were sitting with a therapist back in that day, there were many who did that, who believed that that's what women were supposed to be relational and not assertive. That therapist might make interpretations um, and uh, you know nods and you know affirm affirmations of precisely what has caused the sexist induced pain in the first place. In other words, upholding the sexist system rather than questioning it. And and what I discovered in the course of, you know, reading a lot of clinical work and thinking about my own clinical work is that this happens a lot, a lot more than we want to admit, particularly when we're not, not exclusively, but particularly when we're not thinking about people in the context of their social locations and just thinking about people, people, tend to be upper middle-class white males. (laughs) So um, that norm is what gets encouraged for men, a particular way of being male. And then there's a particular way of being female or white female or black female or white working class female that also can be encouraged to the detriment of the person that you're, you're working with. So, That's what I I, I feel like I took the work that had been applied to culture outside um, by the Frankfurt School, by other Althusser, by Gramsci, and tried to bring it into what happens in in clinical work um, that that brings about a status status quo, what what Eric Frum called the pathology of normalcy, rather than contests the pathology of normalcy. Or even is aware that it that it's pathological.
1: I, I wanted to talk to you about because it seems like you're touching on this concept that seems to run through a lot of your most recent work, the normative unconscious process yeah. uh, processes, I, for that matter. And um, I was just wondering if you could speak to. I mean, you've already seems like talked about that construct a little bit, but maybe um, how that's in your opinion, how has that um, been received by um, the analytic community? And I don't know if you can speak to just, you know, psychiatry and psychology more generally.
0: <laughs> That's a great question. <laughs> I think outside of the psychodynamic, psychoanalytic world, it's not received at all. And, 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 and even within a world, it's so interesting the way our, you know, this is another normative process, the way the way things are set up in terms of disciplines and how you know this discipline is separate from that discipline, sociology from psychology, etc. I've come across work on neoliberalism by psychologists who aren't clinicians but are in like you know development or personality that are so that that are so similar to what I work on. And um, when I've read interviews, uh, there's a book coming out of interviews with some of those folks, and I, I was endorsing the book. So I was reading the interviews and they were all like talking about how marginal they felt in their worlds, in their psychology worlds. And it, it made me so sad because we don't even know each other. Um, and I, I would say that I have my, my place in the, in the psychoanalytic world has been, um, you know, I, I mean, I'm asked to speak and, and I write a lot um, but it's not it's it's marginal. it's still it's still a marginal perspective. And you know, and I, I most recently, I would say, to give an example of that, I hear over and over again um, in many places, home and away from home. People say, yes, you know, we really have to, we have to like take diversity into account. And, you know, um, I think this is really important and we have to uh, hire some black faculty to teach some of our courses. But, you know, we really don't want to dilute the pure gold of our curriculum. As if this is like this little add on and it's not going to challenge the pure gold of the curriculum. So, um, so, so long as that, so long as most people in the field do not think systemically um, about things like systemic racism, classism, sexism, I, I, I don't think I would ever be a dominant voice in the field, but you know, there's enough of us, which is for me, it's been like life saving that there's enough of us. The folks in psychoanalysis for social responsibility in Division Thirty Nine, um, a group of psychoanalytic thinkers and writers from 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 the '90s, there was um, <clears throat> psychoanalytic dialogues had a very early issue in its first year that was focused on psychoanalytic feminism, and I ended up working with with a lot of the folks who who wrote in that. Virginia Goldner, Adrian Harris, Jessica Benjamin, Nancy Chattero. If you're if you're talking about social inequalities and power structures, it's not the mainstream of psychology. It's never mm-hmm. going to be. It, it's I don't think it's ever going to be. I, I think it's a very individualist field um, that only becomes more so and very elite. You know, I mean, for example, if you if you work all day on Friday because you have a job you can't train at my institute because the courses are on Friday. <laughs> so like that.
1: I, I think it's interesting that you bring up isolation, um, you know, mm-hmm. in the, this academic context or just in a theoretical context, um, uh, because it almost seems to mirror in a way, things that you've talked about in the clinical setting. I don't know if it, if you feel like if you could expand on what you've talked about in terms of how isolation um, from social connection, oh, okay. um, you know, like, like the idea that um, solidarity and actually forming connections with other people is actually, you know, how that subverts neoliberalism as an economic and ideological system.
0: Right. One of the first things that comes to my mind when I think about isolation uh, in the terms that we've been talking about is, that, is that separation of the psychic from the social. And, um. I, in in many of my earlier writing, I had understood that to be um, part of a bourgeois individualist class-based society. Again, like that the norm to, to hide the fact that there are power relations going on and different realities in different social locations, there was an idea that really starts in Freud um, that there's such a thing as man, and you know and that we're all like more alike. And there's some ways that this is true, more alike than different psychologically. And I think Freud had really um, some really good reasons for having a universalist view. Uh, he was Jewish um, in a very anti-Semitic culture. and so um, he, he he was at pains to be human, <laughs> to be thought of as human. Um, but, uh, but unfortunately I think the upshot of that in psychoanalysis has been to obscure, um, that relationship between the psychic and the social that we've been talking about. And so that, that's where I had, I had rooted it in the idea some theorists talk about how the middle-class ideology, one of the tools for disguising its power is to take itself as human, as man. Um, and then I was in this uh, a meeting of Reflective Spaces, that group that you had talked about that I I found I founded um, co-founded some years ago, um, and it was a group of clinicians. It's a group of cl- so social justice-minded clinicians. And in one particular meeting, we were talking. To, uh, the focus of the meeting was supposed to be on social activism and clinical activism. And we we go around the room at the beginning, and we try not to introduce ourselves by our status. You know, I work at Harvard, blah blah blah. Um, but by like, why are we here? And so the why are we here question was how do you connect your uh, social activism and your clinical activism? And what happened in that meeting is that it's predominantly white folks are in that group. Um, Almost all the white folks said, I don't know how they connect. And that's kind of why I'm here. And the people of color were just like, you know, shocked, floored. Um, How could you not (laughs) see the connection between um, your social location and, and what you do in the clinic? And I think it was really only then that I realized that that separation of the psychic and the social is a product of racism as well as of, um, as classism. So, so that's the first thing I think of when, when you use the word isolation that how those two have gotten isolated. Um, but I think you're, you are probably also talking about some of, again, another feature of neoliberalism, uh, the, um, uh, downplaying of interdependence and solidarity, you know, for, and again, what comes to my mind first, when I say the word solidarity is class solidarity. So the busting up of unions, you know, is the non-clinical, one of the non-clinical versions of, um, of just these broader, you know, destroying of relational bonds. Um, in one of the essays in the book, I talk about, uh, the way neoliberalism has impacted different large, large groups. And, um, and that chapter is called Yale fail jail. And the Yale part came from a patient. Well, the whole thing came from a patient of mine who said that the message she got when she was growing up was Yale or jail. Like she is white middle-class, either you're going to an Ivy league school or you're going to jail. And when she said that, I didn't kind of, I didn't realize at the time how well that captured neoliberal society. Cause I don't think I really understood neoliberal society, but that like radical inequality that marks income inequality and that marks neoliberal culture was precisely what her parents were anxious about and pushing her to be the 1%, you know, that succeeds rather than the disposable 99%. And in, in that chapter, I, um, I talk about how uh, the one of the features of the middle class family that's pushing for their children to succeed. I think all, you know that that's that's kind of exists throughout the culture with different you know life chances in, in different groups. Um, uh, but um, there was a concept that was coined by a British sociologist named John Roger. Uh, cool. Well, he didn't coin it actually. He was he got it from Anthony. It was called. He called. It's called amoral familism, and it's about how empathy. So a couple chapters in the book are about empathy. How empathy gets redefined, and this is another piece of the book. Like you, you don't want to look at things like empathy as something that's the same throughout history. You always want to historicize these terms. How is it operating now? What kind of cultural work is it doing now? So empathy. um, He was arguing. Has come to be redefined as something you that's on offer in this in the middle and upper middle class on offer to your family and those who are your intimate intimates of your family and maybe you have some ter- you know sad feelings empathic feelings towards distant sufferers you know in Afghanistan but you you're never looking at your complicity. And you're so that's that's what I'm thinking of in terms of isolation, the interrelationships and the way we're um, involved in each other's suffering um, and joys are it's part of the denial of the systemic that I was talking about earlier.
1: So yeah um you know you're mentioning you know empathy right as even working on a social level but on a clinical level and you know for people for clinicians and training or other just clinicians out there i wonder if you might talk about you know how social psychoanalysis and the normative unconscious processes um, you know, play out in terms of how therapists can respond to to them?
0: So there are many schools of psychoanalysis, as you know, and um, the school that I'm most closely tied to, although I, if I find things that are useful in other schools, I draw liberally from them, but The the school that I'm most closely aligned with is the Relational Psychoanalytic School um, that kind of started in the US around the early 80s. Stephen Mitchell uh, is one of the founders, and then some of the people who work in it are Jessica Benjamin um, and all the feminists that that I had (laughs) mentioned earlier. Um, And people, that's where a lot of articles work on race and gender and sexuality in that, in that, in that school um, were, were being written about. And I think partly uh, where I got onto the idea of normative unconscious processes was because um, a tenet of that school is that in any therapy, there are two unconsciouses in the room, not just one. Um, a long time ago, a Kleinian said, there's not a, one sick and one healthy person in a room. Um, there's kind of two sick people. (laughs) If you think that this culture makes you sick, then yes, there are two sick people in the room. So because of that, you and if you don't really look at your own history, your own social locations, um, understand that in the context of these larger systems of racism, sexism, and heterosexism, you may very well be um, likely to reproduce it. So I really value the relational schools' perspective on unconscious process, and uh, they're not the only school to talk about enactment. Um, Kleinian schools talk about enactment too, but they don't—they don't really emphasize the the role. Although maybe more so recently, the role the therapist plays in the enactment, whereas the relational school. Actually, I have a quote here that I, I just love. Very early on, an interpersonal. So Eric Fromm was an interpersonal psychoanalyst, and he um, was involved in the William Allenson White Institute. And one of my favorites people from that institute is uh, Edgar Levinson, who's still alive. He's probably in his 90s. And in his book called The Fallacy of Understanding, which was 1972, he said, as psychotherapist, I cannot be sure that what I have said is heard as I said it. I cannot be sure that the perception of the patient, if different from mine, is any less appropriate. And I cannot be sure that I did not say what he thinks I said rather than what I think I said. So that's sort of the heart of normative unconscious processes. When you, either you or your patient, um, can catch an enactment that's going on where you are involved in... um, you know, as I said earlier, reproducing the systems that you you should be trying to to resist. Um, so that requires the vulnerability and the humility, um, both of them, of of the therapist to be open to listening to what your patient says he or she or they just heard, um, and not get defensive about it. Uh, so, the, these, a lot of the relational literature talks about working through impasse, particularly Jessica Benjamin's work on acknowledgement of harm done, where, as she says, sometimes the therapist has to go first when there's an impasse. What was the therapist's role in creating the impasse? So, I'm focusing on a particular kind of psychosocial um, impasse. and uh, And, yeah, you know, it could be the patient who notices it. Um, it could be you that notices it, but unraveling it, I think, is is really a, a step towards helpfulness. Um, mm-hmm. I, the other thing I'm thinking of, and when I talk about this, is a great seminar I heard that Janet Helms gave, um, actually within the APA Trust, It was uh, We Hold These Truths. They did a series We Hold These Truths with people from the ethnic minority psychology groups, which, you know... Um, for some reason are also somewhat marginalized in APA, but in this series, they were um, put front and center after the murder of George Floyd. There's that happening. I think we're already in a backlash against that, but that's a story for, for another time. She opened her lecture by talking, saying that she was going to be talking about white heterosexual male privilege, which she just brought, she um, pronounced as wimp. And she said, <laughs> she said, all of our symptoms derive from wimp. All of all of our symptoms, and that includes white men's symptoms too. So, um, so that's what I am hoping clinicians can become more conscious of uh, in in their work.
1: Most definitely. Um, I, I don't know if you can just really quickly speak to where you hope um, social psychoanalysis can can go in the next few years and. Um, what you see it's, its potential?
0: Well, as I said, I, I do think that there's some backlash going on, but at the same time, there's something really, there's a reason why there's backlash because there's a real proliferation of lots and lots of people writing, looking, white people looking at whiteness and how it's operating in their clinical work. Um, decolonial theorists, uh, Dan- Daniel Gastambides' work, Lara Sheha's she work, um, uh, that are just really wonderfully wonderful exemplars of social psychoanalysis, and I don't think it can be put back in the bag. Um, so, you know, my uh, another hope would be well, I hope, and then there's the fear. You know, I don't know where this country is going. I mean, I'm terrified of it. You mentioned that I, I do a lot of reparations work. Well, I, I also don't like it, but I do a lot of electoral work too, because I really do feel like, um, democracy is, is really, I don't even know that we ever had a real democracy, but whatever we had is on the line with voter suppression and all this election, big lie stuff. That's all, all about race it, to end class, to my mind. Um, so I hope this can't be put back in the bag, but you know, remains to be seen. I'm just encouraged by, I'm encouraged so much by how many, um, how many seminars, webinars I've heard in the last year, year and a half, where people of color are really speaking out about the harm that they have um, ta- borne in their training programs and in their institutions um, and I do feel like some institutions, most institutions are really wanting to make changes. I'm not sure how capable white dominated ones. I'm not sure how capable they are, but there might, there might have to be separate BIPOC institutions that have formed um, for clinical work. So uh, they will certainly be social and hopefully psychodynamic, but (laughs) that goes back, that's sort of circular to where we started, right?
1: Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Layton. I really appreciate you speaking with me today.
0: Thank you.
1: Thank you for listening to the Madden America
0: podcast. Visit maddenamerica.com for more news, views, and updates.